Welcome to this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. I am Stuart Blythe, a member of the faculty ADC and the Dean of Chapel. Here, you'll get a chance to hear perceptive and powerful sermons which were delivered by staff, faculty, students, alumni and guests as part of our weekly Wednesday Chapel services. The 1990s was a good decade to grow up in, can I just say? <laughs> Fashion, the sitcoms, the, the video games, it was a good time to be alive. There's something about this golden age of humanity <laughs> that birthed the greatest literary, literary innovation since ink was ever set to paper, if I may be so bold, to choose your own adventure novel. Sure, the high Middle Ages had the Divine Comedy. Sure, European modernity had Proust and Russia, Tolstoy and, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. But none can compare to the literary genius of a novel that allows you to turn the page and choose how the story is going to unfold. For instance, let's say you're camping in Connecticut, and as you hike through the woods, you stumble upon a magical orb. Do you turn to page five, pick up the orb, causing you to be sucked through a portal into a world packed with mythical creatures? Or do you, B, turn to page 10, leave the orb alone, keep walking, and find you get captured by a dark lord who is searching for said magical orb? Or do you, C, turn to page 25, smash the orb, and then an apocalyptic set of events unfold you, causing the alternative dimension that you would have normally been sucked through to appear in this dimension? That one. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, as the story goes on, whatever you choose, as you make choice after choice, by the end of the novel, you might end up A, defeating the Dark Lord, becoming the hero of the universe, B, joining the Dark Lord and being his apprentice. In that case, you enslave the whole universe and becoming super rich. C, the whole world gets destroyed. D, you stumble upon another magical orb, that resets everything back to the way it was before, and you find yourself walking along in the woods in Connecticut as if nothing happened. If that isn't literary brilliance, I don't know what is. Well, when it comes to today's passage, let's just say I've had a few adventures with it, some that I didn't actually choose. I remember sitting there reading the Bible during youth group Bible study in high school, and we were doing a study of the Gospels, and it was coming to an end. We were looking at these passages on the resurrection, and doing that, I couldn't help but notice in the Gospel of Mark, there's a strange set of subtitles, marking the shorter ending and the longer ending, as well as what's going on with those snakes. As well as a footnote that marks some manuscripts even include this in verse 14. I remember turning to our youth leader and asking at the time, What's going on with those endings? Are there parts of the gospel that aren't original to it? And the youth leader looked at it, puzzled, as if they hadn't actually read it before, and said, maybe Mark wrote both endings and couldn't decide which one he liked best. And so he put both in. That was very helpful. <laughs> really, I asked, puzzled? The leader wrote it off of a joke. Huh, it's kind of like the Gospel of Mark is a choose-your-own-adventure novel. <laughs> I admit that answer really didn't satisfy me. But like most awkward and somewhat traumatic instances of my childhood faith, 
they do end up, at the very least, serving as good sermon illustrations. <laughs> Likening the ending to the Gospel of Mark to a choose-your-own-adventure novel, despite my undying love of this underappreciated genre, didn't quite make sense. But there's this quintessential insight from this genre, the choose-your-own-adventure novel, that is true about the life of faith and about our responsibility in reading the text. Faith is often about the decisions you have to make, and this text very pointedly compels you to make some decisions. Admittedly, some texts don't quite do that in quite the same way. Some texts are fairly easy to interpret. We know and we love these passages. Other passages are less so. There are biblical texts that I've come across. When I encounter them, we don't know what to do with them. They don't fit our paradigm. In fact, we get a whiff intuitively that if they mean what we think they mean, what we suspect they mean, it could potentially be something scary, potentially costly. What do you do? Do you A, feel overwhelmed, so you turn the page, don't think about it, try to forget about it, and go on to something more familiar? B, go online to your favorite website that has all the answers neatly packaged, quickly find the answer that solves the problem, or at least makes it feel like it's solved. See, say to yourself, there's something here. There's something here, and I care enough about God's word and the pursuit of truth to sit down, to think about it, to do the hard, boring, risky work. And who knows? Maybe I might end up feeling called to do my MA at Acadia. I don't know. <laughs> The last part was a shameless plug. <laughs> but the real question is this. Will we do the difficult work of questioning our assumptions when we're confronted by difficult texts? And if I'm going to be honest, I chose path A for the longest time. You kind of get busy with things. You only have so much time, and you find yourself gravitating to the things you can handle, thinking about the topics that are manageable. And yet, certain watershed moments are inescapable. Eventually, you will have to choose. Well, several years ago, I was serving as the pastor at First Baptist Church of Sudbury, but I was also a chaplain and professor at Thornlow University. I was asked to supervise a course that was in the academic calendar on the Gospel of Mark. I hadn't taught that before. And so I decided to read up on the subject. I got a, ca a stack of commentaries out of the library. And seeing that life was quite busy, I thought the best thing to do was double up on my teaching and my preaching schedule. So from New Year's to Easter in the winter semester, I taught the course, but also preached through the Gospel of Mark. I admit I never would have preached through the Gospel of Mark. Like many throughout church history, I preferred Matthew and Luke because they were fuller and longer. And if I can name it, there was always something about the simplicity of Mark that bothered me. It just wasn't enough. In the preaching schedule, I had the crucifixion and resurrection passages for Good Friday and Easter, obviously. <clears throat> and I figured I would deal with these final verses the week after. I remember thinking about it at the time when I put together the schedule, unsure how I would tackle it, but figuring I'll work it out week by week as I go along. Well. Teaching and pastoring, as you can imagine, got very busy. Good Friday and Easter came, and then I remember coming into my office, still exhausted from the weekend, sitting down at my desk, looking at this text, and a stack of commentaries, and saying to myself, how 
am I going to preach this? <laughs> How am I going to do this? Do I, A, skip it and just go on to the next preaching series one week early? <laughs> that transition from Easter to a new series might make a lot of sense. Do you think anybody would notice? Do I, B, preach on just the definite ending? Ending at verse 8, not treat the rest, and maybe if one of the more astute and inquisitive congregants asks me about it, then maybe we'll have a conversation after church with them. Or C, read the whole thing, just ignore the tough issues in the text, or say that we just don't have enough time to get into all of it, and instead just focus on some basic application to be drawn from the story. I didn't know what to choose. I immersed myself in the commentaries, hoping to, that a clear answer would emerge. Writer's block quickly set in as I was wrestling through the different perspectives. I remember asking myself, how do I preach a text that I haven't made up my mind on? How do I preach a text that I'm not even sure should be a text at all? How am I having this dilemma? I'm the pastor. I have a doctorate in theology from a prestigious university. I'm supposed to know the answer. Isn't that what my job is? What if people get upset at this discussion? We got some folks that started to come up to our church from that fundamentalist church the next town over. Would they leave over this? What about that person that seems really fragile in their faith? That person that comes to church needing encouragement and not more questions? Would this sermon, this topic, burden them? Am I being unpastoral for talking about things like this in a sermon? If I believe that, am I admitting that it is somehow a good thing to keep what is going on in the Bible from some people? Is that what good preaching is? Well, as some of you have found in your pastoral ministry, Saturday night has a way of sneaking up. <laughs> and in this week, Tuesday night. <laughs> I tried desperately to piece something together to say. I resolved in option D. Perhaps the best approach was not to tell congregation what I thought was the answer, but because in truth, I wasn't quite sure yet. And just lay out the options in bare honesty and let the congregation decide for themselves. Well, as I did that Sunday morning, I announced that it looks like there are three sets of options in this text. There's the question of how do you interpret the definite ending, the question of the longer and shorter ending, and the question of what do you do with them overall. Well, all would agree that the original manuscripts have the announcement by the angel at the empty tomb that Jesus is risen, and that the, men, the women uh, leave afraid, ending in verse 8. Then what? Option A. Some commentators believe perhaps Mark didn't finish his gospel or that the manuscript was broken, torn, or lost, and either way it was circulated in incomplete form. One reason given for this is that the last line that most translations read, and they said nothing to anybody for they were afraid, the last word of that last phrase is the Greek word gar. The Greek word gar means for or because, and some have suggested that that's an unlikely way that the Greek would end, implying a break in the language. Literally, maybe saying something more like, they were afraid because, and there the manuscript breaks off, or Mark didn't finish. Well, that's possible, but then there's an option B. Other commentators say that while it is unlikely to end in gar, it's not impossible. 
And perhaps the Gospel of Mark intentionally ends there. After all, there's this theme of people being amazed and fear-struck at what Jesus does. There's this other theme about secrecy in Mark's Gospel, where Jesus tells people not to tell, any, tell others about him, but then lo and behold, they do. And now the witnesses leave and they're commanded to tell others, and ironically, they're speechless. In other words, Mark ends his gospel with a kind of ironic cliffhanger ending. But the very fact that Mark is writing to churches decades later, it attests to this obvious fact that those women did not remain silent. They told others the gospel as the first apostolic heralds of the church. So you're left with the options of either A, the original is broken off, or B, it intentionally ends with a cliffhanger ending. Either one leaves you with a little bit of discomfort. Either the text we have is incomplete or damaged, or it's quite minimal. Notice no actual post-resurrection appearance here, only the promise that as the women go from there and tell others, they will meet the resurrected Jesus on the way. Well, whatever you think about the original ending, there are still more choices to make. What do you do with the short and longer endings? Here again are the options. Option A, the shorter ending is the more recent ending. It pops up in the manuscripts around the fourth century. And I'll read it again. And all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterwards, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of the eternal salvation, Amen. Actually, the Amen isn't in the earliest version. Apparently, one copyist really loved this ending and couldn't help but writing Amen to it. Which is maybe like the ancient way of hitting like the like button or something? I don't know. Well, why was this shorter ending put in? Some speculate. It mentions the emergence, or this importance of Peter, and the gospel reaching east to west. It kind of sounds like a description of emerging Christendom in Europe in the fourth century with Rome consolidating its power with its claims around the office of Peter. As one commentator notes, it seems like more than a coincidence that we see a neater, more definitive, even triumphal ending getting placed on the bare, bewildering, response-begging ending of the original. And that this happened around the time that Christians moved from a marginalized, powerless community to a community in power. If the original does end in verse 8, is the shorter ending an imperial rewrite, trying to stabilize Christian readers with certainty where Mark wanted to destabilize in order to provoke a response? That's up for you to decide. Let's move on to option B. The longer ending is actually older. It dates to the late 2nd century, and even then there are different versions of it. If you look at the more common version, it appears to be a set of summary statements gleaned from the end of the Gospel of Luke. And so we can speculate, maybe possibly one well-intended copyist pasted an abbreviated version of Luke onto the end to make sure anybody reading Mark might know that there's more to it, more to the story. Perhaps they're just trying to be pastoral, trying not to burden their readers with too much disruption. Well, whatever the case, this version becomes the dominant version in Western translations. And thus, this is the assumed original ending in the King James Version, and the others at the time of the Reformation. It's not until the 1800s that manuscript comparisons brought up the obvious fact that it's not original, and that there's more than one ending out there. Well, now our next set of choices. 
Knowing all that we know now, what do we do with these endings? Again, the options make us a bit uncomfortable. Do we A, take it out? Well, take it out, and we're left with the uncomfortable admission that the text we've had in hand, the text that we've had and used for 1,800 years, the text that Christians have read and preached and claimed to have heard God speak through, is corrupt. So much so that we need to fix it. Or a passage, and a passage of no lesser importance than the conclusion of the first gospel? That's kind of important. Do we take it out? Is it our obligation to take it out? Evidently, most translations leave it in. Try and some even minimize the multiple versions by making it look like a fluid text. Why? Probably because of marketing. Probably because most Bible translations still want to cling very close to how the KJV words things, because that's the translation we often have a sentimental attachment to. Do we take it out? If we choose to take it out, should we take other passages in the Bible out? Maybe even other books? Should we take out the story of the woman caught in adultery? Should we take out the possibly inserted line in 1 Corinthians 14 about women being silent? Some people might want that out. <laughs> Should we take out the books that we think the apostles didn't actually write out? Why stop there? Maybe we should put some stuff back in. Maybe the books of Enoch, or the Gospel of Thomas, or the Apocalypse of Peter, or, or, or. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> Certainly, some of these examples are more extreme than others. But the question is, in the interest of trying to get back to just what the original authors wrote, where do you draw the line? Can you draw it in some circumstances? And does trying to fix the text ironically send us down the same path that motivated some well-intended folk to tack on an extra ending to the Gospel of Mark in the first place? Perhaps we have to confess that we are left with a text in hand that, didn't, that doesn't really fit our perceived expectations of what the Bible ought to look like and perhaps was never meant to. There's also an option B. Leave the endings in. If that is your choice, you're presented with some other challenges, not least of which, which ending, or possibly both. How do you see inspiration working there, then, between a text and its author, or in this case, authors? Is only what Mark wrote inspired? Are we compelled to believe that the writers of the other endings, whoever they are, were inspired too? Can we say that we trust that God has indeed spoken through these endings and continues to speak through them? Have believers legitimately heard the voice of the Spirit speaking through these other endings for 1,800 years? Does that commit us to the theology of this passage? Some have invoked the long ending for their practice of snake handling under the promise of divine apostolic protection. Look that one up on YouTube. As if there isn't enough emotionally scarring material on the internet already. And if you ever feel tempted to think this conversation doesn't matter, or perhaps it's too heavy, say that while watching a pastor shout these verses while twirling a cobra around, or to have the cobra hit him in the head and bite him. Let's just say it puts things in perspective. But that means we're left with some uncom uncomfortable options. Did human error or human fallibility uh, do something to this ending of Mark? Did God, for some reason, allow this, this ending to be there? If so, why would God do that? Well, whatever you decide on that, you are faced with the questions about the text in hand. 
Can a text speak beyond what has been said, how it was said, what has been done to it? Can God speak through a text that we have doubts about? Can God speak through a text that we might not think should be a biblical text at all? What does that say about the nature of God's word? What does that say about our faith? In high school, we had to do a unit on media. And one Canadian philosopher named Marshall McLuhan had a line that was repeated again and again in the class. Maybe some of you remember the line. The medium is the? Message. Oh, wow, there we go. Okay. <laughs> the medium is the message. Flashback to grade 12 English class. If the medium is the message, this text, its multiple endings, its evidence of additions, says something about what faith is and what we have faith in. We sang a song in Sunday school. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I love that song. But to be a Christian certainly is to trust what the Bible says. But what if the Bible, whether by incident, incident or perhaps by design, does not in some cases, perhaps like this case, give us an easy place to stand? If you feel that these options don't give you an obvious decision, maybe that's where God's word wants you to be. What if faith in the Bible demands something much more risky? What if the Bible intends us to do something more like take a leap rather than stand still? Because if it was perfectly black and white, seamlessly clear, unquestionably certain, it wouldn't actually be faith. It certainly wouldn't be a relationship where honesty and questioning and vulnerability are integral to growth. There's something about the Bible that beckons us to be responsible interpreters active participants in conversation with God, in complete honesty, rather than fearful and passive recipients. Good Baptists might call this soul liberty or soul competency. And if this is the case, the options of this text remind faith by that your faith and my faith, your faith and no one else's, and my faith and no one else's. Not the, the faith that you were raised with, not the faith of your community, not even what you were taught in seminary, ultimately. That faith, in order for it to be yours, has to be responsible. It has to take that choice. It has to contend with things. It has to contend with open-endedness, ambiguity, and brokenness. To choose to walk with God in and through these things, rather than using faith to somehow insulate us from the obvious fact that we are human, finite, and frail. And that there's no, uh, there's no thought that we can have, whether we read it off a page, or have it by a divine vision, or have it declared by magisterial proclamation, or deduced with all the prowess of academic evidence and reason that it can escape this permanent quality to us as humans. We're fallible. And if that causes discomfort or decenters you, perhaps that's the kind of effect Mark's ending is trying to produce, whether by the intention of the human author or the divine one. Its purpose is not to harm faith, but to deepen it. Does a text like this cause you to doubt the Bible? Or does it remind us in its own way where the Bible truly gets its authority from? Does it provoke worry or instill wonder? The Bible is not ultimately a choose-your-adventure novel, at least not the kitschy ones of my childhood. But it's a story that finds its highest truth in the choices of its main character, God, to whom we are invited to respond. It is the story of God's choice of yes to sinful humanity in Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the story in which all our stories find themselves, including our stories of brokenness, 
including our stories of trying to distort God's word, if we choose to trust this. It is the truth that our God is the God that transforms tragedy into opportunity, the God who turns betrayal into forgiveness, the God who turns execution into liberation, the God that can turn death itself into eternal life. And how do we know this reality? In one way, these endings reiterate our need to trust the resurrection all the more. The juxtaposition is perhaps providential. As if to say there's no knowledge of the resurrection without that risky choice. You don't just know it by hearing about it, or by reading it, or by arguing about it. It can't just be an idea in your head. You must choose to follow it. Follow it to the point of giving up everything you know. Follow it to the point of becoming last in this world. Follow it despite all fear and uncertainty. Follow it to the point of taking up your own cross. It's these kinds of choices the text presents us with. The choice to live life in the midst of death. The choice to live hope in the midst of despair. The choice to live love and forgiveness in the midst of hate and violence. The choice to live honesty and mercy in a world that is content with lies and arrogance. The choice to live in trust and humility in a world that desires power and control. It's a choice to keep your life set on the light that shines in the darkness and trust that the darkness will not overcome it. And as the wind found as they left the empty tomb, it is on that way, if we choose to walk it, walking in Jesus' way, that we encounter what this text is truly about, the resurrection, for he has risen. You see, if the medium is the message, if it's part of the message of this text, this resurrection text, can God continue to speak through these words? Put another way, can God resurrect the text? I choose, I feel led to, believe that the same spirit that brought breath back into the corpse of Christ breathes through these pages and is breathing on us today. Because it leads, however you answer these questions, leads to others. Can God use imperfect believers to be the members of his body? Can God resurrect a broken church? These questions are one and the same. Finding their answer in the God whom scripture witnesses to and we witness to with the very letters of our lives. Well, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. As you go from here, what will your choice be? Let's pray. God of resurrection and the life, today we trust you. In all of life's uncertainty and all the doubts and questions we have, we trust you. Lead us in the life of resurrection. But remind us that this path is always through taking up our crosses. Remind us that the journey will include dark valleys. Jesus, we know that you never leave us or forsake us, and so walk with us today and always. You are our hope, you and no other. Renew us, Holy Spirit. Speak to us afresh. Breathe life into us when we become exhausted. For your good news, may we never be silent. And for your faithfulness, may we never stop praising you. Thank you for joining us in this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. You can follow us on social media. Discover more on our website at acadiadiv.ca or join us for chapel on a Wednesday.